becoming a Christian is not like receiving a health club membership. The Bible describes the Christian life very differently. It does not describe it as an insurance policy. It's not a self-improvement course. It's not a philosophy or a psychology system. Christianity is not, technically speaking, even a religion. Not a standardized set of ritual practices and moral rules. One evening, a Jewish rabbi named Nicodemus paid Jesus a visit, you remember, desiring to talk about spiritual matters. And in that discussion, Jesus described a right relationship with God as necessitating nothing short of spiritual rebirth. You must be born again, he told Nicodemus. The Bible makes clear that from our mother's womb we are born in sin. We are born in a state of alienation from God. We are born objects of God's wrath because of our innate sinfulness. To be rescued from that condition takes nothing less than spiritual rebirth. And if a sinner who deserves the judgment of God is indeed born again, if a sinner receives the life-giving power of God's Holy Spirit, that newborn believer comes alive to a whole new set of realities. Think of them. We might mention many others, but one is from the moment that I'm born again, my personal history locks into the larger story of redemption. The creation of the world. The election of Abraham. The rescue of Israel from Egypt. The death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The birth of the church. The consummation of all things as Christ hands over the kingdom to the Father. My little story gets locked into all of that. I look back, I look around, and I look forward with a whole new orientation when I'm born again. I see Christ's saving purposes in all things. Secondly, upon conversion, I recognize that Jesus Christ is Lord. I'm no longer the captain of my fate. From now on, Jesus Christ occupies the throne of my heart. I may struggle with that. Certainly there will be moments where I must confess my sin. But I know that's who He is. He is the Master. He is the Lord. That's a whole new orientation. It's not self any longer. Third, when I'm born again, God's Word and will gain full priority over my reason and my passions. What I think is ordered to what Christ desires. The passions of my life I seek to give to Him. What I want to do, and think of this, think of this radical change. What I want to do, where I want to go, how I desire to express myself, where I want to find pleasure, what I want to believe. All of this is now subjected to what God wants for me. And gladly so. How can I bring glory to Him with all of these thoughts and passions, with all of my actions? This reorientation of life is so radical and all-encompassing, it is described as a new birth. A birth from above. 
What we must also recognize, however, and I hope that to this point you're saying, I understand that. I agree with that. And I know that that is the case. But what we must also understand and recognize is that this radical reorientation is a process. It takes place incrementally in our lives as followers of Christ. Jesus not only saves us from the penalty of sin, He not only makes us heirs of heaven by His gift of eternal life, through the power of the indwelling Spirit, Jesus progressively saves us from the power of sin in our daily lives. That's what He's doing. We are justified in a moment of time as God declares us righteous through faith in the Gospel. We may speak of this as definitive sanctification. Sanctification related to that word holiness, to distinctiveness, to being called out of this world and separated unto God. This definitive sanctification for time and eternity we are made holy people as we respond to the Gospel of Christ. But God also saves us in order to make us increasingly holy in this life. And that we refer to as progressive sanctification. So we are declared sanctified. We are declared justified as we come to faith in Christ. But there's this process that continues. We are saved once and for all, and we are being saved as God progressively changes us in this life. Our progress in holiness makes its steadied advance. Let's add one more idea to it. It makes its steady advance into the teeth of a culture which is radically opposed to everything that God wants to change in our lives. How He wants to change you and conform you into the likeness of His Son, this world is set against that agenda. It wants nothing to do with it and it wants you to have nothing to do with it. It's this message that the Apostle Paul brings to the Thessalonian believers. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We'll look first at chapter 1, but we come in our journey through this book to the fourth chapter. Remember of Paul's desire for this church, his love for them. He longs for them to grow in their faith. They have been definitively sanctified. They've come to salvation in Jesus. And now he's working with them to bring them forward and bring them along. But that definitive part, their rebirth, we find chapter 1 and verse 4, where it says, You know, brothers, loved by God, that He has chosen you. He has chosen you out of this world and given you life in His name. Verse 9 of the first chapter, we remember that second part of the verse, you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. There's that reorientation of life. A radical change has taken place. Chapter 2 and verse 13, as he remembers bringing the Gospel to them, he thanks God constantly. Why? 2.13, when you received the Word of God, you heard it from us, but you accepted it not as the Word of men, but as what it really is, the Word of God. There's that definitive sanctification. But notice the next phrase in verse 13, which is at work in you who believe. As we come to chapter 3 and verse 10, he says there, we are praying most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. 
Had they not turned from idols to serve the living and true God? Remember chapter 1. They had even become models for others to follow. Their faith was so distinctive that throughout the region of Macedonia they were known for their faith in Christ. And yet he says, I want to come and supply what's lacking. You've got more progress to make. We all do. And so he issues here in chapter 4, verse 1, a call to sanctification. The, the verse starts with the word finally. Don't read into that a temporal idea as we do. That usually means in conclusion or it's just about time to end. But this Greek word is translated finally in our, by our English word. It's just saying we're turning now to a whole other topic. He's taking this idea of their reception of the Gospel, who they have become in Christ, and their relationship together as the communicator of the Gospel, the receiver of the Gospel, and now... He begins to talk about their growth in that faith. So finally, let's talk about something further here. We ask and urge you, brothers, in the Lord Jesus, that as you receive from us how you ought to live, literally walk, speaking of the Christian life, how you ought to live and to please God just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. Now when you think of the idea of sanctification, progressive sanctification and growth in Christ, notice what is brought out here. Sanctification, we find, involves learning what God wants. If we back up for just a moment, He asks them this. That gets their polite attention. Then He urges them in this way, saying that, This is a matter of utmost importance. And then he says, in the Lord Jesus, there's the authority for all that he's saying, all that he's encouraging them to do. He says, listen carefully. We've instructed you in the past how you should live, how you should please God. And in fact, you're doing that. But, Thessalonian believers, I want you to grow in this orientation to please God more and more. So we learn that first, sanctification involves learning what God wants. We have to gain a knowledge of what pleases the Lord. Secondly, sanctification involves making moral choices that I know will please God. I act in a way that is responsible to what I know about what He desires. So I need to take in the truth and learn what God wants. I need to put that into practice by pleasing Him with the moral choices that I make. And thirdly, this is obvious, but sanctification involves making progress in my obedience to God's will. Putting that, the first two together. Knowing what He wants, honoring what He wants, and pleasing Him in my life, and then making progress in my capacities to know and to obey. Now we must understand that the Thessalonians lived in a very decadent culture. And there were many temptations to allow that culture to press them into its mold. Paul urges them to pursue a radically different agenda. To be conformed to what pleases God. So through verse 12, Paul is going to take up three distinct areas of life that the Thessalonians need to address as they pursue sanctification. That we need to address as we pursue sanctification. As we seek to become all that God has saved us to be. That first area is sexuality. 
verse 2, he says, For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus when we brought the gospel to you, when we ministered there in Thessalonica. You remember what we taught, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. The overarching idea, God saved us to be a holy people, morally distinct and pure. Specifically, verse 3, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Here is our call to you as an apostle. Here is our call to you as the team that brought you this good news of Christ by which you've been rescued, turned away from idols to serve the living and true God. We call you now to abstain from sexual immorality as you make progress and grow in that faith. That's the overarching idea. In order to grow in sanctification... You must understand this. It is God's will that we limit all sexual gratification to the confines of marriage between a man and a woman. Sex is the Creator's gift and it is designed for the confines of marriage. How does that hit you? As we go back in time to the Thessalonian culture, this was radical. Thessalonian men, and that's the, the, the orientation here in the address is toward men, and obviously includes women. But the Thessalonian men, for them, sex with domestic slaves, that is, women living within your home, having sexual relations with them on a routine basis, they spoke of a daily basis, and sex with prostitutes on an occasional basis was a way of life. Uh, where does that get you if you're a politician living that way here? That doesn't get you very far, does it? That causes some real problems, and we see that spilling into the newspaper here and there. For them, that was life. It's just what you did. That's just the way that life works. It's like going to pick up the mail at the post office. Well, who would ever think anything of this? The cult of Kabiri of Samothrace was renowned for its cult prostitutes right there in Thessalonica. You could be, think of this, you could be a religious Thessalonian, an upstanding member of the community by consorting with prostitutes at the local shrine regularly. That was their life. That's all they knew. Well, why, why was there marriage? They're very concerned about marriage. You married a woman to raise legitimate children with her. And they did not look kindly on adultery because that was stealing something from another man. So adultery, adultery was rampant then as here. But it wasn't such an issue. They knew adultery was wrong because it harmed people on a lot of levels. But sexual relations outside of marriage, that's, that's just life. That's just how we live. So what Paul is suggesting is radically countercultural. And these new Thessalonian believers were apparently having trouble in this area. That would be indicated by the extent of the discussion here. They had come to know Christ as their Savior genuinely, but they were still pressed into the mold of their culture. And he writes to them with courage, straightforward, says, abstain from sexual immorality. Our own culture is rampant sexual promiscuity as well. It just looks differently. We have technology that is overwhelming 
the church of Jesus Christ. Through the internet, through cell phones, through sexting, adultery, premarital sex, homosexuality, prostitution, incest, even bestiality, it's all here. It's all here and it presses upon us at every turn. We inhabit a culture in radical rebellion against God's good and gracious design for sexuality. We have to deal with it. That's where we live. There are strong forces insisting, for instance, that the ultimate test of genuine Americanism is acceptance of a homosexual lifestyle. If you're an American who gets freedom, this is going to be the test. Don't imagine for a minute that we're not going to face that in our church on an increasing basis among our younger people as time passes because the culture dictates it. When the culture says that's a perversion, that's an evil, the church points to Scripture and says absolutely so. But when the culture begins to say it is hateful to question such a lifestyle, there will be people in the church who begin to cave. It'll be here. We'll face it. We perhaps already are. Because there is this pressure to conform. Pulling back to just a more simple description. Some years ago, a survey of Minnesota teens, they asked them, why were you involved in premarital sex? Number one reason? To avoid the V label. The pressure from the culture around is that being a virgin is being a nerd. And we don't want to be seen that way. You don't have to watch much television at all just in passing occasionally to see that there is very few things ridiculed more than virginity. It's a culture in which we live. There's the pressure that's there. Come on, get with the game. You don't want to be that weird, do you? You don't want to be that different. We live in that kind of a world and it places, it exerts pressure upon our young people and upon every one of us. Now this pressure from outside to cave into what seems so natural, what the world is promoting, we need to realize has to be countered within our own soul. This pressure must be overridden by a desire to please God and grow in sanctification. It's not rocket science. It's difficult. It's a battle. But it's all right here for us. To know what pleases God, to know that does not please God, means that I orient my life toward what God desires and what pleases Him, not toward what the culture is dictating. The key is to love God more than I love popularity. To let people call me anything that they want. To know that I'm walking in fellowship with God is what matters. And young people under the assault of this world, for you particularly who are unmarried, you've got to choose. You can't be popular in both places. You're going to please God or you're going to please this culture. Paul says to these Thessalonian believers, forget your culture. It's pressing you the wrong way. There is a God in heaven. 
please Him. Only that love for God will help us to not gratify the natural urges of the flesh. But ultimately, we must remember that it is what God commands then that we must obey. Sex was designed by God in order that a couple might plumb the depths of intimacy and fidelity. Two naked bodies reflecting two naked souls in a permanent bond of knowledge. There's something good in that. There's something that is right about that. It is God's good gift to mankind. And it is an egregious sin to take God's gift and His design and to use that gift and that design on our own terms for our own sensual gratification. If you're pursuing sexual satisfaction outside of the body of your mate, you're not pleasing God. And you need to stop. You need to pursue sanctification. It's a major challenge. Paul goes on to address that in verse 4, that each one of you know how to control his body in holiness and honor. This will need to take place more and more. There needs to be progress in this area, but that you would control your body in holiness and honor. Literally, the Greek text reads, to acquire your vessel, which leaves all kinds of questions as to what that means. Does it mean to acquire a wife? Does it mean to possess in the sense of control your body? Well, both of those ideas are obviously interrelated. Whatever the case, we're to gain mastery over our sexual passions. That is God's call upon us as His people. You notice there the phrase in verse 5, the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. It reminds me of C.S. Lewis, the book Abolition of Man. As I was reading through that book some time ago, I, I, I noticed this chapter title. I thought, what on earth? The title was Men Without Chests. Well, that get your attention, doesn't it? What's this godly man writing about men without chests? What's that all about? Well, it really, it was an interesting title. It really goes back to the Greek thinking, which saw the, the, the head as the mind, the source of the intellect. The chest was the source of noble affections. We might illustrate it simply by kind of how you feel when the, the uh, Star-Spangled Banner is played on July 4th in a parade of soldiers marching by or something. There's just that, that, that sense of affection. You have a sense there's something that's moving. This isn't just intellectual. There's something within me that's responding to this, and it's good and it's noble. That, they would say, is thinking with your chest. And then there was thinking with your belly, or acting out through your belly. And that spoke of the fleshly passions. You know, the unbeliever, as Lewis brings out there, they're people without chests. They have the mind and they reason rationally. Here's how we should think. Here's how society will go forward. Here's what we should do. And they're driven by their lusts and their passions and their desires. But you put those two together and often the passions win. Because they're men without chests. Well, we don't look at it precisely that way. 
we look at as those who have been born again, it's not merely the human affections as we order them rightly, but it is above all else the Holy Spirit of God dwelling within us to lead us to train our mind to think what we should think and to bring our passions under control of the Spirit of God to use them in a way that pleases the Lord. So we should not live in passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. We do know God. And that makes all the difference. So he continues, verse 6, that no one would transgress and wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger in all these things as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. There's motivation number one. You wrong your brother when you're involved in sexual activity outside of marriage. You wrong somebody. We think of many of these things as I'm all alone. Or it's me and her, me and him. Nobody will see, nobody will know under the cover of night. Listen, we've got to understand that everything that is done privately, sexually, is a public affair. It will become that eventually. In some way, shape, or form, it hurts somebody. It hurts a future mate. It hurts a present mate. It hurts parents. It hurts relationships. It can hurt a church. Notice what he says. Don't transgress or wrong your brother in this matter. Second motivation, verse 6, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you, you may do what you're doing no one may see, but no one does not include God. He knows all things, and He'll not be mocked. This isn't my words. I'm not trying to frighten anybody. This is the Apostle Paul's words through the inspiration of the Spirit. He says the Lord is an avenger of all these things. I've said so many times in my life, I have never gotten away with anything. I know it's probably not totally true. Don't talk to my brother because he'd probably come up with a few things I haven't paid for. We don't get away with anything. God is not mocked. He is an avenger of all these things. And we must recognize that and be driven by an appropriate fear of God. Third motivation, verse 7, for God has not called us to impurity, but to holiness. When I'm living this way, I'm totally out of sync with the reason for which I was saved. God saved us out of such impurity, not to be driven by the passions of the belly, so to speak, but to be driven by the Spirit of God. 1 Peter 1.17, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as He who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Chapter 2, verse 11, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. One commentator says those who are called must at the same time align their conduct with their holy calling. Sanctification is at the same time both a divine work, chapter 1, verse 4, and a human obligation that can only be met through the power of the Holy Spirit. Chapter 5, verse 23. Fourth motivation, verse 8. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God who gives His Holy Spirit to you. 
When we sin in this way, we reject God's Word in favor of our autonomous lust for pleasure. I don't know if this is true, but some have suggested, who's the man here? Whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God. Some have suggested that it may be that the Thessalonians were saying, we are so thankful Paul came to declare the Gospel of Christ. We have received Christ as our Savior. We have been saved. But his whole thing about sexuality, that's just Paul's opinion. Maybe Paul is subtly saying here, it's not my opinion. If you reject this counsel, you're not rejecting me. You're rejecting the Word of God just as much as if you had rejected the Gospel because this is the will of God. Christian, this is an area we just have to get right. There's going to be a battle. Our culture is overwhelming us. There is a battle within our souls for something that is so natural, such a drive, such an interest. We've got to win this. And we don't. There are people who fall. There are battles that are lost. But we need to come to the Lord in confession of sin on a regular basis, seeking His forgiveness. We need to work with one another to help each other forward, to be willing to confess our sins, to be willing to be accountable to others for our lives, to not live secretly, and to help each other graciously and purposefully with mercies that abound to help each other do right. We need the church. We need one another. We need Christ. This is not an area we can set aside. We must get this right and keep battling. Say, I'm so far lost in this. I, I, it, I'm overwhelmed by it. What Paul is saying is keep making progress more and more. Keep confessing sin. Keep changing your life. Keep working with others. Keep making progress. You'll be reminded perhaps every day that you're a sinner. But by God's grace, He will be transforming us. He shifts gears. Second point of sanctification, and that is love for other believers. Sexuality first of all, and then love for other believers. Verse 9, Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. It's a different kind of love that he's describing now. It's brotherly love, which typically the Greeks reserve for relationship between family members. He's saying you are a family as believers in Christ. And as believers in Christ, you are to love one another. You've been taught this by God, showing you in Jesus Christ what the way of love is. You are indeed loving one another, verse 10. That's indeed what you're doing to all the brothers throughout all of Macedonia. Well, how is that? Some have argued, I think convincingly, that as we put together the idea of what we learn of the Macedonians in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and chapter 9, we learn that they were in deep poverty. We also understand that Thessalonica was a central hub in this region. It was called the mother of Macedonia. And so people would be coming into the city all the time 
bringing food in from the hinterland and seeking supplies and things there and then going back out. And Thessalonica was a mother to all these people. Apparently the church there is serving the same way. And as Christians are coming in from outside, rather than spending the night at the shrine with the prostitutes, Thessalonian Christians opened their homes and invited them in. There were no motels, hotels as we understand them today. Campground, you get killed. It's very possible as well that in their poverty, which we learn about in their giving to the Jerusalem church, there were people who needed financial aid along the way, and these believers were stepping forward and providing that aid. In whatever way it was that their reputation throughout all of Macedonia had become known as those who were loving their brothers and sisters in Christ. Tremendous testimony of faith. But notice that he says at the end of verse 10, but we urge you brothers to do this more and more. They are highly commended in Paul's view for the way that they're living, but he says keep going. Keep pressing forward. Keep pouring out your gifts of love. So sanctification, we learn, is not a private matter. It's an orientation toward the family of God. It's not a worldly orientation. That is, we relate to each other as a church, others existing to give to me, to please me, to honor me, to meet my expectations. No, it's a complete, radical reorientation to love others in sacrifice and goodwill. What is your orientation toward the family of God? Is it genuinely brotherly love? Are you here to simply consume? Or are you here to give, to bless, to build up, to aid? And we take that question and we move then to our life as a church together. It's a church project to love others, just like this Thessalonian church did. I'm thankful to God for them. They made a difference in the whole region of Macedonia. Probably the nearest major city to them was took a lot longer to get there than it does for us to get on the other side of the globe today. Our region, in some sense, is the planet. But we as a church need, through brotherly love, to be pouring ourselves out to be a blessing to others, to be aiding others in the cause of Christ. we got to get this too. We could be in trouble as a church, particularly right now, couldn't we? We're facing a major gap, a major challenge financially between us and our move. And that puts us in a difficult spot. But we are, what else are we facing? We're also facing a journey of 12 people to this church in Alaska needing to supply the resources to help that church as we seek to pour out our lives and our time and our resources to help that church be stabilized. That's loving brothers. Because I'll tell you, right now seems like a really bad time for this trip. And who's going to give to it when we've got so much on our plate? And then you add to that the church in India that the supply of this church has allowed them to purchase land, to build a well, to pour footings for a building, and they're waiting for us. And i got record today, and we'll be talking about it next Sunday night. They're waiting for us. 
A lot of things that they can supply and should supply, this is one of those things that's very, very difficult if it would ever happen in their lifetime. To move them out of a house and into their own building will be tremendously helpful. But we just say, how can we do this? Here we, and, 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 and if we don't think properly, we can get to this place and say, well, how, why are we here? Why all these giving projects? Why? Maybe we aren't doing the right thing here. Maybe we should just tool back and not be pushing ourselves so far. Are we getting overextended? What, what, what do you think the Macedonian Christians thought when the, Paul came through and collected money for Jerusalem? They were giving out of their poverty. Of course we're overextended. Now we have to be careful. We obviously need to be careful in the management of our gifts. But I look at, we can look at this in two ways. We can say we shouldn't be in this spot. We shouldn't have all these people calling for our money. Or we can look at this and say, by God's grace, I don't know how we're going to get through all of this, but by His grace we are being called to love others. To pour out our resources to be a blessing to others. I think that's exactly where we ought to be. We can't make everything. We can't do it all. We have to say no sometimes. And we may not make the particular jump we're striving to make, though by God's grace it seems we can. But are you comfortable living a life of love that pours itself out toward others? We should be. Tonight, our teens come and talk about three churches in this area. Minneapolis, Richfield, Lakeville, that they've touched for a week of their life here recently. All of these things are resources going out. They all cost money. They all take time. I thank God that we're in a church that's loving other people. To be in a church that's all self-oriented, and I, thank, I, I honestly believe in the mercies of God and His providence. India sitting in front of us, and Alaska is sitting in front of us, and these three churches that we've just completed, that was sitting in front of us, for very good reason, for our sanctification, that we not become navel-gazing, self-oriented church. It's all about us and our building. It's not, is it? And I thank God for that. But as we think in these two directions of how I love others in my church and how our church is loving others beyond our own bounds, we're called to this life and it will take sanctification to grow into such a church and such people. We're going to have to make progress more and more to be willing to pour ourselves out to make waves in this world. To bless people. And along that end, he adds a third point. And that is a work ethic. Sexuality, brotherly love, work. And to aspire, verse 11, to live quietly, to mind your own affairs, to work with your hands as we instructed you. Now what's going on here? We don't know. Many people would say well, it's, it's eschatology. There's, there's a lot of discussion in these two books of Thessalonians about Christ's coming. It would appear that there's some individuals who are just saying, Jesus is coming soon, I quit my job. I'm not going to work. Why work? He's coming soon. If, if you ever see somebody in that mode, you know they're in the wrong place. If you know Jesus is coming tomorrow, go to work today. That's what you're supposed to do. Because you don't know if He's coming today. Be ready at all times, but you don't know. Maybe that's what was going on. 
There are others who suggested a different idea, and I think it's worthy of consideration, and that is to take us back into the context of Thessalonica. There, they had this strange thing we don't quite understand, but it was a client-patron relationship. If you were a patron, you were a mover and shaker in the community. You had extra money. And as a patron, you would take on clients and you would give to them resources. You might supply their food. You might supply their dress and maybe even their housing. And they would do certain things for you. One of the things that they did, it sounds sort of silly to us, but the clients would show up at the patron's home in the morning. Every morning, all of them gathered out in the front door to say, Good morning. And the patron, I mean, his, his, his heart just fluttered. There's all these people that are dependent on me and they come every morning to say, good morning, patron. And off they go, probably all swearing under their breath at the guy because he didn't give them this or that. But they would then use his clout because they were clients. They'd use his clout politically to get their way. And if you played your cards right as a client, you could, actually didn't really need to work a lot. I don't know if that's what's going on with these individuals, but for some reason, some of them were saying, we don't need to work. We can kind of live off the system and just hang around and collect whatever's given to us and we, we won't work. That's possibly the background, as it says here, to aspire to live quietly. Quietly doesn't mean you keep your mouth shut as such. It might, but it means you're not living in a way that's agitating and causing dissension. These are people who aren't busy, they're busy bodies. So they're going around in some way and they're stirring up trouble with people. Get to work, do your job, and you won't be causing such dissension, Paul says. Mind your own affairs. Work with your own hands, as we instructed you when we were with you. Now why? So that you may live properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Now, obviously, dependency needs to be qualified. We are an interdependent body of Christ. Any one of us can run into trouble where we become dependent on others. But you know his point. You're not to leech off of other people. That doesn't commend the Gospel to outsiders. They don't like that. They may be separated from Christ, but under common grace, they see a leech for what it is, a leech. Nobody likes a leech when they stick their foot into the lake. And nobody likes a leech when they stick their foot into a church. Don't do that. Get to work. Be diligent. Outsiders are watching. The cause of Christ is at stake. William Barclay, listen to this. What a tremendous statement. As we think of our reputation toward outsiders, he said, a tree is known by its fruits. And a religion is known by the kind of men it produces. The kind of people. The only way to demonstrate that Christianity is the best of all faiths is to show that it produces the best of all people. You know, that's exactly what Jesus is doing. That's what He wants to do, to say, there is my trophy. For this person, I died and gave my life. I died to redeem this individual from hell, but to change this individual into the holiness of Christ. Look at this Christian. A sinner. One who fails. 
But do you see it? I'm changing her. I'm changing him into the likeness of Christ. When the Gospel comes, it gives us new birth. And our sufficiency then is not in ourselves. I need to grab the attention of a few of you, perhaps, right at this place. It may be very easy for some of you to be hearing this. Sexuality. Brotherly love. Labor in work. I'm going to do better in all those things. We've got to be very careful with that understanding. Our sufficiency for all of this is bound up not in who we are, but in who Jesus Christ is. It's bound up in His death and His resurrection, and only in His provision will we find the power to do anything that we should. But we have this assurance from Scripture And those of you who are thinking, I fall so far short. My sanctification is so weak. My progress is so slow. Hear this again. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. Jesus is doing a work to radically change us. So when we find ourselves weak sexually, when we find ourselves weak in our love for one another, when we find ourselves lazy and inactive, and unwilling to do the things that we ought to do, remember that our sufficiency is in Jesus Christ. We must come to Him as the source of our faith. He is our chest, so to speak. It's the Holy Spirit dwelling within us that must be given free course to control our passions, to direct us for His glory. And this is what Paul will say later as he says in verse 23 of chapter 5, Now may the God of peace Himself sanctify you. May God sanctify you. May He sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Where does He turn in the end for this change? He turns to our Savior. Only Christ can provide this for us. Listen, there's something going on in each one of us. There's a culture outside that presses us into its mold to live in self-centered, godless ways. There is a Spirit who dwells within those who are born again. And through the ministry of that Spirit, we must cooperate learning what God wants. Practicing what we know is right. And slowly, patiently, through confession of sin, through accountability to one another, through patient time, step by step, conforming to the will of Christ. It's not about you. It's about what He's doing in you. But He calls us to respond and to say to Jesus, do in me what I could never do in myself. Change my loves. Change my desires. Give me new joys that are from heaven itself and overwhelm the passions of the flesh. Let's bow together for prayer. Father, there are among us undoubtedly those who are separated from Christ and their passions and their idols are killing them. They're messing around with 
temporal pleasures, momentary passions. And they are living with no concept that you are a judge and an avenger. I pray, Father, that in their heart You would make this clear that Jesus Christ will meet them in eternity. But I pray that You'd also bring comfort then and response that Christ provides salvation from sin. He provides sanctification that is definitive and complete for those who will come and place their faith and their trust in Him. I pray that You would work uniquely now in the soul of such a person and draw them to a place of repentance and salvation today. For those of us who know You as Savior, Father, we thank You for the work You're doing within us. We long for You to change our passions and our desires while at the same time we have these passions. We want what we don't want. But God, I pray that You would change what we want and that we would love You with all of our soul and mind and strength. Our hope is in Jesus Christ, in His death and resurrection. And in that provision, we trust today. I pray for anyone here who needs to run to Christ in confession. Help Him to do that. Help her to do that today. Deliver us from the web and the entanglement of sin that we might know the greater and deeper joys of walking in fellowship with our Savior. In whose name we pray. Amen.